Welcome to Obscurities. I'm Debbie Rashawn. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Now, wasn't that just heartwarming? Jump rope rhymes or skipping chants. Little girls jumping rope often chanted while they skipped, singing with cadence. These rhymes and skipping songs are the original memes developed in the 1800s by little girls. Skipping rope was by no means new. Boys had been skipping rope since the early 17th century, and girls didn't participate because the activity might display their ankles. But this changed in the 1800s with the introduction of the pantalettes, leg undercoverings for a more modest style. It was then when the girls took over the jumping rope. The boys did not chant, but girls loved to sing, and certain rhymes and songs helped to keep the tempo while skipping. The girls made up rhymes based on current news events, gossip, tall tales, advertising, and even political slogans. The skipping song spread almost as quickly as social media does now. Many of those chants are familiar today, with many that reference disturbing events and circumstances of times past. Our opening chant illustrates this point. You've probably heard about Lizzie Borden and the ghastly murders of which she was accused, but do you know the whole story? It is more bizarre than you might remember. Little girls skipping rope recite details of a grisly crime, forefront on the minds of most Americans, in 1892 through the trial in 1893. Lizzie Borden was arrested as the prime suspect in the murder of her father and stepmother on August 11th, seven days after the double homicide. The crime horrified the public when it was discovered on August 4th, 1892. The news of this heinous crime quickly spread throughout the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, and swiftly spread nationwide. Lizzie's father, Andrew Borden, was 23 when he married Sarah on Christmas Day, 1845. Lizzie was born 15 years later, 10 years after her sister Emma. When Lizzie was only 20 months old, her mother passed away at age 39 from uterine congestion and spinal disease. A middle sister, born in 1858, died at 22 months from dropsy of the brain, now called encephalitis, a viral infection in the brain which causes swelling. Little more than two years after Sarah passed, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. Lizzie was not quite four years old. 
By all accounts, Lizzie and her sister were well provided for during their childhood, but Lizzie never really connected with her stepmother. Problems began to arise when Lizzie became a young adult. Lizzie claimed that Abby merely married her father for his wealth and made considerable effort to articulate that Abby was only her stepmother, not her mother. The family's 25-year-old maid, Bridget Sullivan, whom the girls called Maggie, testified later that the girls rarely ate meals together with their parents. Andrew Borden was a very successful and wealthy businessman. He owned real estate, houses, and other rental properties, and he invested heavily in area mills and banks. Andrew had little growing up but worked hard and grew more and more prosperous as his businesses expanded. He earned and possessed respect within the community, but was frugal. He and his family lived in the original house he purchased with his first wife, and Andrew had no desire to move to a new, more upscale neighborhood. However, Lizzie and her sister Emma wanted more than living in a modest house without indoor plumbing. By this time, it was more common for upscale homes to be equipped with such a modern luxury that the sisters coveted. The girls were raised in a religious home, and the family attended and was highly involved in the activities of the Central Congregational Church. Lizzie taught Sunday school and was the secretary-treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. She was also involved in various women's social movements. In the late spring of 1892, tensions in the family were rising. Andrew, the father, gifted real estate to several members of Abby's family, and Lizzie and Emma were less than thrilled. They demanded rental property of their own and purchased the home they lived in with their mother for one dollar. Now, a notable incident occurred that May. Lizzie had built a roost for pigeons in the family barn. Not long after, her father Andrew took a hatchet, went to the roost, and slaughtered several of them claiming they only inspired local children to hunt them. This incident is now debated how much it upset Lizzie, but the reason stands that it certainly did not put any water on the rising flame of their family feud. Midsummer, following the pigeon slaughter impasse, the sisters sold back the property to their father for a recorded $5,000. In July, both Lizzie and her sister Emma retreated for extended vacations to New Bedford following a family argument. A week before the murders, Lizzie returned home to Fall River, but rather than going home first, she decided to stay elsewhere in a nearby rooming house for several days. On the days leading up to the nationally reputed heinous murders, the tensions only grew higher. 
The household suffered from a violent stomach sickness due to an unknown cause. Was it the mutton left on the stove for several days, used in several of their recent meals? Or had they been poisoned by a mysterious enemy of their not-so-popular father, as Lizzie herself suspected? On August 3rd, the day before the crime, Lizzie visited a local drugstore and tried to purchase prussic acid, a highly poisonous and volatile liquid. The boiling point of prussic acid is just above room temperature, 78.1 degrees, also known as hydrogen cyanide. Lizzie claimed she wanted the substance to clean a sealskin cape but it was a common medium for murder and suicide in the 1800s. For some reason, the druggist refused to sell her the compound. That evening, Lizzie and Emma's uncle, John Vinicum Morse, brother of their deceased mother, arrived for a visit to discuss business matters with Andrew. It is widely speculated that these business conversations, particularly those related to the transfer of property, only added strain to the family tensions. On the same evening, Lizzie visited Alice Russell, a neighbor, and confided that she suspected her father's enemies would try and kill him. Uncle John slept in the guest room that night. August 4, 1892 Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, Uncle John Morse, and the Borden's maid Bridget were at the Borden home. Following breakfast, Andrew and Morse conversed in the sitting room for nearly an hour before Morse headed out to buy a pair of oxen and pay a visit to his niece nearby. He had planned to arrive back before noon. Around 9 a.m., Andrew went out for a morning walk. Maggie, the maid, was feeling unwell that morning, but went outside to wash the windows. After Andrew had left, Abby headed upstairs to make up the guest bed, which, unbeknownst to her, would lead her straight to her demise. Forensics report that somewhere between 9 and 10.30 a.m., Abby had met her horrible fate. As she went in to make the guest room bed, a scathing hatchet met the side of her head, just above her ear, forcefully knocking her to the ground face down. The face plant bruised her nose and forehead, causing her face to swell. But Abby's killer still did not relent. One, two, three, four, five. No, not 40 wax, as the bleak nursery rhyme sings, but still, 17 horrifying hatchet blows collided with the back of Lizzie Borden's stepmother's head. Andrew returned, but his key was not working to open the door. He knocked. Maggie came to it and opened it, cursing out of frustration that it was jammed. A faint laugh from upstairs graced her ears right at that moment. <laughs> A laugh that Maggie would later testify belonged to Lizzie. When Andrew entered the home, he inquired Lizzie as to the whereabouts of Abby. Lizzie told her father that a messenger arrived summoning Abby to visit a friend who was ill. 
The story changed several times as to the whereabouts of Lizzie from 10.30 onward. Desiring a nap on the sofa, Andrew laid down, and in reports, Lizzie claimed to have helped her father remove his boots and put on his slippers. However, a simple glance at the forensic photos of her father on the couch will tell a different story. Lizzie then told Maggie about a department store sale and encouraged her to go. But Maggie, still not feeling well, headed upstairs to the third floor to rest instead. Lizzie and her father were left alone downstairs. Maggie, come quick! Father's dead! Somebody came in and killed him! It was just after 11 a.m. Maggie came running down, but Lizzie did not permit her to go into the room, but sent her to seek a doctor. Andrew was slumped on the couch, face covered in blood and gruesomely mutilated, with one, two, three, eleven hatchet-like slices to his face and head. Andrew's boots were still on. Reports indicate that the moment Andrew was murdered, his eyes were in fact closed, confirming that he did indeed lay down to rest. And rest he did. His time of death was approximately 11 a.m. The sequence of events on August 4th has been incompatible in the police reports. The number of hatchet blows varied, Lizzie's alibi during the time of the murders changed several times. At one time, she stated she was in the kitchen reading. Then another time, she was ironing. And later, she was coming down the stairs when she discovered her father was murdered. Then accounts of who Lizzie and Maggie sought out for help following the gruesome discovery also varied. One account stated that the family's physician arrived first and determined that both parents were dead. Another report indicated he was unavailable, so Lizzie had Maggie seek out a family friend, Mrs. Churchill. But why did they seek out a friend when there were several other doctors that they could have found? There were endless questions about these apparent inconsistencies. Lizzie's answers throughout the investigation continued to be peculiar and contradictory. She first told the police that she heard a groan and a strange noise before entering the house. Only a couple of hours later, she told police she entered the house unaware, not thinking anything was wrong. As to her knowledge of the whereabouts of Abby, Lizzie believed that she had gone out to visit a friend who had taken ill. But then it was also recorded that she thought Abby had already returned and that someone should go and check on her. Amidst the horror and chaos of the investigation, Lily's countenance remained calm, without a tear, and poised. Other inconsistencies continue to emerge from the case. Maggie and Mrs. Churchill went upstairs together, and as soon as their eyes met the second level, they claimed they saw Abby face down on the guest room floor. If Abby's body was so visible to the passerby, why hadn't Maggie noticed when she'd gone upstairs to the third floor to rest, or when she rushed down when Lizzie called for help for her father? The police themselves were not blameless. 
the police were criticized for and admitted to a lack of thoroughness in their initial inspection upon arriving on the scene. The follow-up interrogation left something to be desired as well. Investigators did find two axes, two hatchets, and a hatchet head that was broken off the handle in the basement. The handleless hatchet had a fresh break, yet was also covered in dust and ash, unlike the other tools. Some reports state that one officer said the hatchet handle was near the hatchet head when it was found, but another officer contradicted this statement by saying it was not true. No blood was found on any of the tools. No murder weapon was confiscated during the initial inspection of the crime scene, and neither were any bloody clothes. However, the dress that Lizzie claimed to have worn the day of the murders only had a small drop of blood at the bottom hem. Lizzie turned over this dress to the police herself, two days after the slayings. On August 6th, Following a more thorough search of the Borden home, police confiscated the suspected murder weapons. That evening, a police officer, along with the mayor of Fall River, paid a visit to the Borden home to inform them that Lizzie was a suspect in the murder of both parents. It wasn't until August 8th that the maid, Maggie, testified that she witnessed Lizzie burning a dress on the kitchen stove the morning following the mayor's visit. Maggie stated that Lizzie claimed it had been ruined by wet paint. The defense never challenged this claim in the trial, and it was never confirmed if, in fact, the dress Lizzie burned was the dress she wore that day. A private inquest hearing was held on August 8th. It would be the only time that Lizzie was called to testify in court under oath. A state statute prevented Lizzie Borden from being permitted to have a family attorney. Inquests in Massachusetts were at the time held privately. But Lizzie did not lack in defense. A family doctor did not question her innocence and prescribed her morphine to calm her nerves. He claimed that the morphine was to blame for the inconsistencies in her testimony. On August 11th, a warrant was issued, and Lizzie Borden was taken into custody. A grand jury was summoned to hear evidence beginning on November 7th, and on December 2nd, Lizzie was indicted for the murders of her parents. The murder trial started on June 5, 1893, in New Bedford, Massachusetts. On June 20th, 1893, the jury deliberated for an hour and a half, then acquitted Borden of the murderous crimes. When Lizzie was leaving the courthouse, she told reporters, I am the happiest woman in the world. The Lizzie Borden murder trial quickly became front-page news across the nation. It was a trial that gained high publicity and vast public speculation. There were so many contradictions, and beneath it all, so many mysterious layers. Fall River was filled with its own battles, the Irish insurgency, upper-class power, Protestants versus Catholics, and suffragist movements. Thus, the trial was easy fuel for politics, social and ethnic class, religion, 
and women's rights. At the start of the trial, suffragist groups were enraged that Borden would not be tried by a fair jury of her peers, but all men. Remember, women could not vote, and women were not summoned for jury duty. But she received more than a fair trial. There were many factors at the time that worked in her favor. Most thought a woman was incapable of such a horrendous and abominable crime. There were too many unknowns, and many thought the investigation was less than competent. Lizzie herself questioned Maggie's motives, her father's enemies, and even possibly an unknown assailant with unknown motives. The facts available to the jury, however, proved too obscure for a conviction. Speculative tales have risen in the past century following such a gruesome crime. Lizzie was always the prime suspect. If she did it, why and how did it genuinely play out? Writers and mystery authors have suggested many scenarios to this day. Was Lizzie actually a victim of disassociative disorder, and did she commit these crimes in a fugue state? Did any physical or sexual abuse happen to her during her upbringing? Was there any romantic connection between Lizzie and Maggie, the maid? The family's prestige and the Victorian era itself would ensure all lips were sealed. Others speculated that Maggie might have had the motive to get back at Abby for having to clean the windows on such a reportedly stifling summer day, especially when she was feeling unwell. Was it the sister Emma, who was 15 miles away, or Uncle John Morse, who was out buying livestock, both with absolutely perfect alibis? And was it a coincidence that Abby was murdered first, carrying on the order of succession of a state, straight down to Andrew's daughters? Lizzie and Emma realized their dream after the trial and moved into a large, modernized home on the hill, the wealthier part of town. Lizzie went by Lisbeth, and her new home, which she called Maplecroft, employed live-in maids and a housekeeper, along with a coachman. Though in her dream part of town, her entrance back into society as before was never permitted. Lisbeth was shunned and following a party she threw for a famous actress, she and Emma had a falling out. Emma left, and the two sisters never saw one another again. Lizzie passed away at the age of 66 in 1927 from pneumonia. Ten days later, Emma passed away at age 76. Today, most historians and forensic experts agree Lizzie got away with murder. Since 1996, the actual house where the murders occurred has operated as a bed and breakfast, fully embracing the notorious murders in 1892. Martha McGinn inherited the house, which her grandparents purchased in 1948. After operations spanning 25 years, McGinn decided to retire, and the building sold for $2 million. 
The new owner purchased the property and the business and plans on keeping the accommodations open to those brave enough to spend the night at the site. Tours of the house will continue, and the new owner plans new events and activities incorporating the murderous house history. Axe-throwing events may provide thrills and excitement, capitalizing on the murder weapon of choice. A firm believer of ghosts, the new owner experienced paranormal activity while staying at the house and believes others will enjoy similar encounters and entertainment. If you missed out on purchasing the Lizzie Borden house for yourself, not to worry. Maplecroft is up for sale. Lizzie and Emma moved there after Lizzie's trial, and Lizzie remained for the rest of her life. Maplecroft sits on a half-acre lot, boasts seven bedrooms and three-and-a-half bathrooms, and underwent a complete restoration in the last couple of years. There are 4,000 square feet of living space and six fireplaces, and the house is being offered fully furnished. The house may come with ghostly residents, though, which may be hard to evict. Some say Lizzie or Emma may still wander the building. The home has been visited by ghost hunters and even features on television shows alleging paranormal activity. The realtor hopes the new owners respect the historical aspects of the building and maintain the integrity and history of the site. Maplecroft is engraved in the marble steps leading to the front door, proclaiming its prominence and history in one of America's most notorious unsolved murders. Yours for only $890,000. A very special thanks to McKenna Sari for her rendition of Lizzie's jump rope chant. Obscurities is brought to you by FX on Hulu's American Horror Story Double Feature. In American Horror Story Double Feature, a struggling writer, his pregnant wife, and their daughter moved to an isolated beach town for the winter. Once they're settled in, the town's true residents begin to make themselves known. Can't believe we're doing this. I never thought I'd get you out of the city. I think this is gonna be the perfect place to work without distraction. I've been coming out here to write for a few years now. This place inspires us. I could really use some of the inspiration you guys have on tap. I'm facing some serious writer's block. That won't last long. Trust me. Something weird is going on here, and I want to know what it is. There's nothing more addictive than success. You tasted it now. You're never going to be able to live without it. We are not safe here. Oh my god. But it takes pain.
trying to make beautiful things. I'm trying to keep this family together under very difficult circumstances. Experience a collision of terror like you've never seen. American Horror Story Double Feature. Available now, streaming next day on FX on Hulu.